Good evening, everyone. This is the end of our third full day, this retreat. Time goes fast when you're having fun, doesn't it? <laughs> You've all had a chance to uh, get a decent look into the mind. wonder what you're finding there. Junkyard? Sometimes I look out and, and see people's expressions and I think, could it be the food? <laughs> I remember my first retreat I was 26 years old and uh, I had a college degree from a good American university. And I had done psychotherapy, but nobody in my culture had ever suggested that you could actually step outside of your own psyche, your own mind, and observe yourself. And that first look was pretty disturbing. When I started the retreat, I had just come from being a newscaster at a rock and roll radio station in San Francisco for three years. So that first retreat was full of music. Songs went through my head. Songs would pop up in my mind and repeat over and over again. And it wasn't New Age meditation music. It was insidious. Sometimes if a song popped into my mind that was on an album side that I was familiar with, my mind would track through the rest of the album. <laughs> Sometimes flip it over and play the other side. It really, it, was, it drove me a little crazy. But then, of course, a little later in the retreat and in the next retreat, the, the music started to fade. And it was almost like turning the dial on the radio because then it was all talk radio. <laughs> and the programs were your love life and your financial situation. <laughs> I think that we should, uh, a lot of people I've talked to say they have that music thing. Uh, I think we should call it jukebox karma. But what we see when we look into the mind, basically, our desire, aversion, doubt, often restlessness, often sloth and torpor, and these energies, these mental energies are so common that they were codified, even in the Buddhist time, they were so common, they were codified as the five classical hindrances. So I'd like to talk tonight about those hindrances. First of all, let me just ask you, has anyone here not experienced one or more of these mental 
energies in the first three days? Of course not. If, if you hadn't experienced any one of them, you would be either fully enlightened or an alien of some kind. <laughs> the fact that nobody has not experienced them should be a clue. Don't take them so personally. What we are seeing is not just our own conditioning, but the human condition. What we are seeing is not just our personal drama, but the human drama playing out within us. We share a common mind. It's nice to know that because, you know, then you know it, you haven't been singled out for special punishment. You know, we're all in this together. And it's nice to know that. Misery loves company. So I'll look at uh, the five hindrances. I'll take them a couple at a time. We'll start with desire and aversion. And I'll take them together because they really are two sides of the same coin. Desire moving toward, aversion moving away from. And these are really the twin engines that run our lives. Both of them usually accompanied with some degree of dissatisfaction, dis-ease. The first thing to acknowledge about desire and aversion are that they are perfectly natural. Every living being has some form of de desire and aversion. Even the single-celled being has a little membrane around it. And when there is danger in the vicinity, it retracts that mem membrane. And when there is food or something pleasant, the membrane extends. It is built into the mammalian condition. That's us. A neuroscientist named Melvin Connor did some research, summed it up this way. The motivational portions of the brain, particularly the hypothalamus, have characteristics relevant to the apparent chronic nature of human dissatisfaction. Experiments on the lateral hypothalamus suggest that our chronic internal state will be a vague mixture of anxiety and desire, best described by the phrase, I want, spoken with or without an object for the verb. It's the nature of being alive. It's built in. It's what we call instinct, instinctual. But long before Darwin or Freud, the Buddha understood instincts. He, he called them underlying tendencies. And he said, we all have them. When, there's, when we feel pleasant sensations, we want more of them. When we feel unpleasant sensations, we want them to go away. perfectly natural. We must bow in gratitude to these instincts because they serve to keep us alive. It's why we keep eating and procreating. 
It's why we take our hand off the hot stove. Desire and aversion, the instincts to avoid pain and seek pleasure. But what the Buddha also saw was that as humans we have this gift, unlike the other living beings, we have this gift to see these instincts very clearly and to begin to gain some freedom from them. To begin to bring some choice into the process. And it's only after we begin to see them clearly do we have any freedom at all. Otherwise we are just pulled and pushed around by the world and all the events that happen to us, whether pleasant or unpleasant. We are continually in reaction. But if we can see the process and begin to understand it, then we can begin to free ourselves. So when you see difficult mind states, when you see desire and aversion in the mind, in your meditation practice, consider it a triumph. It is a step towards your freedom. It's not a failure. In meditation, we see the mind up close and personal, and we see how pervasive these two energies are, desire and aversion. You're sitting there. Your knee hurts, and you want the pain to go away. Aversion. You also want the bell to ring to make the pain go away. Desire. (laughs) Then the bell rings. You move your leg. Ah, a moment of satisfaction. But before you've even stood up, you think, I don't really want to go for a walk, do the walking meditation now. Aversion. I think I'll go back to my room and look at my stuff for a while. (laughs) Desire. And then on your way, you decide, after I look at my stuff, I'm going to have some tea. And, you know, it's, it's multiple hindrances. You know, they just... You get to see them very clearly. And you begin to realize this is what runs your life. Ordinarily, we don't see it. We believe we are in control. But really, our biology is in control. I've never failed, it never fails to to fill me with wonder and shock when I sit down at a meditation retreat or even in my daily practice and remember, this is what's running my life. And usually, we have no awareness of it at all. We are blind to that mechanism. it makes you think that life is a little bit like Chinese food, you know? You eat, satisfy yourself, and then just a very short time later, you're hungry again. What's really embarrassing is to catch yourself desiring something you already have, or desiring to be somewhere that you already are. You know, you're, you're there, you're watching this beautiful sunset and over the mountains and think, gee, I want to come back here. I want to, I want this, you know, or you want it just a little different. I want somebody else, somebody with me, or maybe if I had a glass of wine right now, it's never, never, never enough for the, 
for this rabid mind. Basho, the great uh, haiku poet, has a wonderful poem. He says, I am in Kyoto, yet I long for Kyoto. <laughs> so as we examine the nature of desire and aversion, we see also that what really makes us dissatisfied what really brings us suffering is not the fact that we have not fulfilled our most recent desire, it is desire itself. The Buddha says, the first insight is that the thirst of craving is the basis of our suffering. The second insight is that by the cooling of this thirst, no more suffering is produced. The second and third noble truths. So I suggest you take a session maybe uh, of your practice this week and count, if you can, the number of times the mind moves toward or against, toward or away from something. Of course you won't be able to finish counting, you know, it'll, it'll, uh, you'll need a calculator and you don't have one. I think one of the main things that we all are learning and can remember that is really useful so that we don't take it so personally is to remember that it is universal desire and aversion, universal or universal conditions. I was once uh, in Dharamsala uh, where the Dalai Lama has his headquarters and uh, I was flying back to New Delhi with uh, my friend and we got in the taxi and we were headed for the airport and there were Tibetans lining the road and waving and bowing and I don't know, I thought maybe they saw something in me that I didn't see, but <laughs> we got to the airport, I realized the Dalai Lama was also taking this, this flight back to New Delhi and it was a little 18-seater airplane. And my friend had just been reading the Dalai Lama's autobiography uh, where he talks about some of his fears and his, his anger, his, his short temper, uh, and he said that he really hates to fly. So he was sitting just a few rows behind me, and during the flight, if, you know, you're over the foothills of the Himalayas, a lot of updrafts, and it, it's pretty bumpy. I look back, and he's sitting by the window. He's got cotton in his ears, and he's white as a sheet, and he's doing his mala and doing his mantra, <laughs> obviously in, in, in real terror. And, uh, you know, I had compassion for him. I felt better because he was on the flight. You know, I felt safer, but <laughs> he didn't. But basically, you know, if you, if you want a life without desire and aversion, you've come to the wrong planet. <laughs> Another difficult mental energy mind state that we all deal with is doubt. I think a better term for it is uncertainty. The mind does not like uncertainty. It always wants to pin things down, know what's going to happen. It's a survival instinct. So, you know, again, it's all of these hindrances, they're almost, you, you have to bow to them on some level because they really are 
energies that are developed have been developed to, to help us take care of ourselves. So doubt appears often as planning mind, as fear, as judgment, as confusion. And we see a lot of doubt in retreat because, in fact, we're actually training the mind to live with uncertainty, to just be present for this moment, for this moment's experience. To be okay with what Alan Watts called the wisdom of insecurity. So, of course, as the mind feels that it's uh, losing its grip, it, uh, it can get very nervous. And we see a lot of doubt. We see a lot of doubt on retreat. We begin to question this practice, wonder if it's right for us. You know, we have pain in our back and pain in our legs, and we get we have to watch the breath until it just, you know, oh my God, another breath, you know. <laughs> and there's not a lot of lights, and there's not a lot of, you know, mystical revelations. The sky doesn't open up, and we think, maybe I should have done something else. We have doubts about our teachers. <laughs> Some of our doubts are not unjustified, I don't think. I mean, but here we are, ordinary folks, just like you, you know, wearing, we don't have robes. And, uh, Jack looks a little bit like Gandhi, but that's, that's about as far as it goes. But our main doubt, of course, is about ourselves. And it is the most common doubt that we have. The psychologist Alfred Adler said, to be human is to feel inferior. And we all go around believing in the doubt about ourselves, that we aren't good enough, that we couldn't get enlightened, uh, that we can't do this, uh, on and on. I think our self-doubt is, is heightened in our culture where we have so much emphasis on the individual, excessive uh, focus on the individual being on their own. Everyone's on their own. You're out there by yourself. You make or, make or break it on your own. We don't even, we don't even say God willing anymore. You know, God used to be like a sacred scapegoat for, uh, for our failures, but now it's all on our own shoulders. And believing that your, your destiny is entirely up to you and that everything that happens is a result of you is a setup for failure and a feeling of unworthiness. So self-doubt arises a lot in us. In particular, that uh, that old shibboleth, shibboleth, shibboleth. You can be anyone you want to be. Boy, what a lie that is! 
final two hindrances, sloth and torpor and restlessness. First, sloth and torpor, that famous law firm. <laughs> the, the public defender's office, no doubt. Listlessness, low energy. And I think one main source of that energy, one, one main reason we feel sloth and torp torpor is because we're tired. It's hard being a human. We have to feed this body a few times a day. That means we have to work and, you know, think or schlep or type or something. It's not easy. And, you know, and then we come to a meditation retreat where, where we're told there's not a lot to do and you're, you're out of your usual doing mode. Yeah, whew. Go into sleep. Go into dream states. It's hard being citizen of a superpower. You know, I have to keep this superpower economy going. So we all have incredibly busy lives. Driving, driving our cars, driving ourselves, multitasking. I wonder if in the Buddhist time they did multitasking. Who knows? Maybe it was simpler. But these are all, I think, sources for both uh, sloth and torpor and restlessness. They have roots in our culture. Especially restlessness, you know, the mind is always looking for something to do. It needs to feel important and feel like it's, it's working for survival and the betterment of the being that it lives in or that lives in it. But I think our meditative restlessness has some physiological roots. This is just a hunch on my part. In meditation, we're really awakening the intuitive, the receptive, the experiential, what the, the neuroscientists would call maybe the, the right hemisphere of the brain. And so the left hemisphere of the brain, the doing, rational, judging, um, calculating part of the brain has nothing to chew on. We're letting it all go, you know. We're, we're, we're learning to, to let that stuff float away. And it, it, it gets very upset, you know. We've got, we should be thinking about something. We should be, you know, planning the future or uh, considering your retirement or, uh, you know, uh, it gets restless. So on top of our ordinary restlessness, I think we get some of that. We, we can feel some of that when we, when we sit in meditation. These are all difficult energies that we all experience, both in our lives and in meditation practice. And I think it's useful to look at them from the point of view that each of us gets 
a particular preponderance of one or another of these energies, of these mind states. We're all born with a particular temperament. We've known this throughout human history. All cultures have recognized that everyone's born with a certain feel to them. The Greeks believed that we, we were a certain type of person based on the distribution of four humors, phlegm, blood, black and yellow, bile. So if you've got a, a heavy dose of phlegm, you would be a phlegmatic person. Or if you got a heavy dose of blood, you would be a sanguine person, a warm-hearted person. Both the Greeks and the Romans, as well as the Chinese, noticed that people had different, were born with uh, different energies, and they uh, typed them according to the elements, or according to nature. People felt dry, or wet, or brittle, or they bent, they were stiff, they were like earth, like wood, like metal. Of course, we have the astrology system, you know? What sign are you? The Sufis had the Enneagram, still have the Enneagram, you know? Pick a number. I used to be a seven, but I've gained some weight, so I don't know now. <laughs> Disney has a typology. Which are you? Dumpy, grumpy, happy, sleepy? We're all born with a certain kind of energy. The Buddhists have their own typology. The Tibetan Buddhists say that we are born into one of five Buddha families. So for instance, you may be born into the Vajra family, the diamond family, which means that your energy is kind of sharp. And when used unskillful, unskillfully and not developed, that energy can be angry and cutting and divisive. But when developed and understood and used skillfully, that energy can be discriminating wisdom. It can, you can become like Manjushri, the, the god of wisdom with his sword that cuts through delusion. In the Theravada tradition, in our tradition, we have a very simple typology. You're, one or you're born as one of three types, greed, hatred, or delusion. I am a greed type. That doesn't mean that I'm not deluded at times, but that is my basic MO in the world. I seek experience. I'm greedy for experience. And The scientists, of course, have poo-pooed all these typologies, you know, that's just folk wisdom, 
folk tales. But they have their own typology now. They have discovered a gene that selects for novelty-seeking behavior. And they are looking for genes that contribute to uh, different, three other different types of reward dependence, um, harm avoidance, and persistence. So even though they've poo-pooed those other types, they say that we all are indeed born with, with a certain personality type, a certain energy to us. Jerome Kagan, a famous Harvard psychologist, um, was involved in a long-term study of people from the time of their birth into their early 20s. And they had studied their, uh, the chemistry, the neurological chemistry. And they found that people, uh, you know, basically have a certain pattern of behavior, a certain way of being in the world, and that these patterns persist through their lives. And Kagan uh, said that after he, he did this study and, and it, after he's done these, these studies of children, he said he, he's become much more forgiving of his relatives and his friends for just being who they are, realizing how persistent these traits are, these energies are in people. When I started uh, Buddhist practice, many of the people I talked to, and myself included, kind of thought we could maybe get a new personality through meditating. Maybe become someone totally different. You know, someone who would be easier to live with. But after many, many years of doing the practice, it begins to sink in that it doesn't change your personality. But it does begin to change your attitude towards your personality. You start to take your personality less personally. Ramdas says that he, he now he considers his personality like a pet. <laughs> It's always with him. You know, he takes care of it. He, sometimes he lets it off the leash. <laughs> but it's really just living through him. It's really just moving, moving through him. There's a great Spanish proverb. Natures and features survive to the grave. So how do we work with these... Uh, these energies, these personalities, these temperaments that we that we get, that we get assigned to. The first rule is, of course, to recognize them. The first key in the Buddha's uh, teaching in the Mahasatipatthana Sutra that da Jack was talking about on the first night. When the Buddha gives his instructions for working with mind states, he very simply says, one knows a lustful mind is a mind full of lust. 
One knows an angry mind as, an, as a mind full of anger. Very simple. One recognizes it. Not a lot of talk about fixing it, making it go away. One recognizes it. So when you notice a hindrance, be happy. You've noticed it. In Tibetan Buddhism, they have this amazing practice called chod. They have people visualize cutting off the top of their head, making a skull cup. They get, they get very graphic and get down with this stuff. And you put your essence in it. You put your vital life essence in it. And then you visualize your difficult emotions, your energies, as demons, your fear, your anger, your restlessness, desire, as demons. And you know, they visualize those wild-looking demons in, in Tibetan Buddhism with you know, many faces and fangs and blood dripping in the claws. And you hold out your essence, and you invite these demons to come and drink their fill, to, to, to eat it as, as long and as deep as they want. It's Tibetan teacher Siltram Alioni. She says, we usually don't feed our demons well enough because we don't like those parts of ourselves. In Chod practice, however, in contrast to killing the dragon, the usual procedure in the hero's journey, we nurture the demon until the dualistic battle between ourselves and the demon disappears. So the difficult energies are invited in. They're invited to, to make themselves known, to be present. In our practice, we encourage people to feel the difficult energies, to feel them as physical experiences, as sensations in the body. Where do you feel restlessness? Where is this desire located? Is it here in the throat? Is it in the belly? Is it in the forehead? You can encourage it by exploring it, becoming curious about it, and feeling those sensations and seeing, does, this, does it have a texture to it? Does this difficult energy have a texture to it? Does it have perhaps a color? Does it have a motion to it? Is it a wave? Is it a hardness? Is it like a rock? But really to invite it in and feel it is not to repress it, not to try to push it away and keep it hidden, but to let it be present in our lives and then it has its own, it has its own destiny. It stays for a while, it may change, it may be lightened up and then it gets darker. It moves. By allowing it in, we give it freedom and we give ourselves freedom to be with it, to hold it, and to embrace it as part of our lives. Not pushing that which we don't want away, 
and just trying to find the states that we do want. It'll, that would keep us in continual battle, in continual tension. So this openness that we have for these hindrances is really the method that we use to work with them, to be with them, to learn that they are part of our lives. It's so common, you know, I mean, uh, uh, as we all know, we all experience all these five hindrances. And I bet if you exchanged, if you could exchange your mind for the mind of the person sitting next to you, you would have very similar issues, experiences. You know, you are from the same culture. You are from the same species. You know the names would be changed and some of the details. But it would be quite similar. And I think when we can embrace, when we can begin to embrace our own difficulties, we're actually embracing all of our difficulties. We're embracing the human condition, not just our conditioning. We're saying, this too is a part of this life and I will live with this. And it is that opening that begins to free us and open us more fully to the joys as well. And really, if you were in control of all of your mind states, if you really had control you would be happy all the time, wouldn't you? Wouldn't that be your choice? So obviously, it's not a matter of choosing. It's more a matter of, okay, here's one, what's next? And the more you can stay open to that process, to that river, as Jack said, that river of phenomena, that river of experience, the more your life will, will be full and, and present and truly alive. I like to work with two mantras. One is, it's not a, exactly a mantra, I'm not saying repeat it over and over, but they're phrases that I use. It's perfectly natural because of course everything is, isn't it? And I'm only human. You could switch them if you wanted. I'm perfectly human and it's only natural. But in either case, what they're saying is that this too is, is part of life. I also think it's useful to remember that we're part of this story of evolution and we only got these big brains about two million years ago which isn't very long in biological time and we're just really now learning how to use them and how to work with them 
you know, Freud, Jung were only a few decades ago. And the Buddha and Lao Tzu and Socrates were only 2,500 years ago. That's just a blink in evolutionary time. We're really just waking up to how to live and how to be more efficient with our minds and how to open our hearts better to ourselves and to the world. And it's very exciting when we, when we think about it in those terms, in that perspective, because we see that we're part of a, this process. I mean, here we are in this Dharma hall doing this practice, waking up together, really. We're waking up together. We're learning how to be fully human. It's an old saying, when we remember we are human, we are praying. I'll close with a poem by, who else? Jalaladeen Rumi. A song of being empty. A certain Sufi tore his robe in grief. And the tearing brought such relief, he gave the robe the name Faraji, which means ripped open or happiness, or one who brings the joy of being open. His teacher understood the purity of that action, while others just saw the ragged appearance of the clothing. If you want peace and purity, tear away your covering. This is the purpose of emotion, to let a streaming beauty flow through you. Call it spirit, elixir, or the original agreement between yourself and God. Opening into that gives peace. It leads to a song being empty, to pure silence. sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.